price drop? Time to shop. Get to a Nordstrom Rack store today for first dibs on new markdowns. Now score even more, up to 70% off brands everyone loves at Nordstrom Rack. Denim, dresses, sneakers, tops, and more. Plus, get genius deals on jackets, sweaters, and boots for the whole family. Shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and save up to 70% with new markdowns. But hurry, deals this great won't last. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I discovered early on, especially with the velocity at which events come rushing by in the Trump administration, that every day that I wrote a poem, the next day it would be ancient history. And I realized, well, why don't you just embrace that? You're telling history, and in its way, it makes a poem even more interesting. You sort of see my naivete at work. That's John Lithgow in a conversation that was live-streamed by the 92nd Street Y. He's talking about his new book of satirical verse and drawings called Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown. John's an old friend and a superb actor, but it turns out he has all these other talents as well. Here we were virtually at the Y. Hello and welcome to our conversation. I'll be talking tonight, first of all, I'm Alan Alda, and I'll be talking tonight with the great John Lithgow, who you've seen starring in many movies and television series, but remarkably for me, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen was when he played Winston Churchill on The Crown. John, welcome to the conversation. (laughs) Thank you, Alan. Wonderful to hear you say such nice things about me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, you knocked me out with that, and the rest of the world as well. And now you've come out with this remarkable book, which I'm, I've got right here. I've got mine too. Great. Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Crown, which is a sequel to your best-selling book, which was called Dumpty. Dumpty, The Age of Trump in Verse. And this one right. is Trumpty the- Dumpty Wanted a Crown, Verses for a Despotic Age. It sure feels like it. <laughs> now, it, 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 it's a satire. And it's interesting to me, this is the first verse that I've read with footnotes. <laughs> verse with footnotes. Yeah. And drawings. Did you want to be an artist before you wanted to be an actor? These drawings are extraordinary of yours. I did, right up until about the age of 18 or 19. I was determined to be an artist. I grew up in a theater family my father produced regional theater and Shakespeare festivals. So I grew up in that world, but almost because of that, it's not what I wanted. I, uh, from as long as I can remember, I, if people ask me, what are you going to be when you're, you grow up? I would say an artist. 
But then off I went to college where if you, if you wanted to make friends fast, you joined the theater gang. And I was already a, a sort of polished actor just because of osmosis. Uh. So that's how it happened. As I always say, if you hear laughter and applause at a young age, you're doomed. That's what you will do. I, I you, know that You feeling. know all about this. You're a second generation yourself. That's right. They carried me out, out on stage when I was uh, six months old in a burlesque sketch. <laughs> yes. Burle- you had burlesque and I had Shakespeare. He has his share of burlesque, too. Well, I was six months old, but I, in burlesque, I wasn't the only one with no clothes on. So <laughs> it worked out okay. But you've written such an extraordinary book. And as we speak, it's an extraordinary time. And it really opens us up to a very interesting conversation about satire itself. What is satire? When is satire not appropriate? When is it appropriate? The book holds Donald Trump up to a satirical point of view. Is this a good time to do it now that he's been declared sick with the coronavirus? Nobody wants to kick a man when he's down. Nobody wants to be seen doing it anyway. The question is, where's the line? Well, these are the questions that weigh on all of us, especially uh, people who are in the funny business. Things change so quickly. I mean, you ask that important question, when is it appropriate and when is, is it inappropriate? On Friday, I would have said it was inappropriate. But by Sunday morning, it was appropriate. And, uh, you, you know, all of us who were involved in this book... Of course, we've, I've spent since last December working on this book. It was my uh, all-consuming preoccupation during the long uh, period of sheltering in place. Uh, four or five months of hard work writing the poems, and then another month of uh, illustrating them. And then I launched this project and involved you in it, Alan, of making 21 little videos of the poems in lieu of a book tour, in in order to launch and promote the book. You put all that work in, this is 10, 11 months of work, and suddenly along comes Friday, and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've just got to pull the plug on the whole thing. We dare not laugh. This might be a good time to play the video that you made Mm -hmm. that introduces the the, the whole book. It's the the verse that is the first in the book. I think it would be a great... Great time to play it. Good. It's, it's a lovely, well-produced video. Jumping off point. Trumpty Dumpty wanted a crown. Trumpty Dumpty wanted a crown to make certain he never would have to step down. He wanted a robe made of ermine and velvet. The Constitution, he wanted to shelve it. With impeachment awash, his ambition had grown. He wanted an orb, a scepter, a throne, six royal palaces, six royal carriages, a church dispensation for six royal marriages, courtiers installed on his own supreme court, and royal beheadings, if only for sport. He craved the occasional royal procession and gasp, the eventual royal succession. Trumpty Dumpty gets his way, unless the public has something to say. If we let him have all of his favorite things, we'll have to endure the divine right of kings.
<laughs> I just noticed the gesture as he, as he was yes, pulling right. out. Yeah, you have to watch it a few times before you catch that. I never uh, saw the, that before. The, the King Dumpty <laughs> flipping the bird. That's the first of about 21 of these. They are created by this wonderful group. My friend Tim Van Patten gathered, he, the great director, he gathered together these three guys who make up Triptych Studios, Adam Bankhead, Adam Westbrook, and uh, Brian Swibel. And they just spun magic out of my, not only my poems, but my illustrations. And the other th extraordinary thing about it is I've asked about 18 of my friends, Alan Alda included, to participate just by filming themselves at home, the way we're filming ourselves right now. And I divvied up the poems to them. So, you know, you just saw me, but wait until you see the big Billy Goats gruff. We have Whoopi Goldberg, Glenn Close, Meryl Streep, Bennett Benning, Samuel L. Jackson, uh, Edie Falco, Steve Buscemi, and I even corralled a few politicos, uh, Steve Schmidt, James Carville, the epidemiologist Laurie Garrett. The thing about my poems is they are funny, all right, but with, they are quite intentionally savage and mean because they are almost all of them are dealing with very serious subjects. I had no idea when I launched into the project just how serious the subjects would get, but just think of it. From the time I said yes to this second book of poems, we had the impeachment hearings, Trump's acquittal, the coronavirus, the arrival of Black Lives Matter activism, and a colossal economic collapse. And all the time, I was writing funny poems about it. I'm thinking about the nature of satire. You, you were saying that it has to be outrageous, even involving a, a bit of insulting concepts. And, and, I'm, and the idea that it appeals to the people, preaching to the choir in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it can be effective and get under the skin of the leaders. Uh, the guy who imitated the uh, success of the uh, Daily Show in Egypt, I think his name was Youssef, yeah. got so under the skin of the leader there that he had to run to America to, with his family to save their lives. Yeah, And uh, there was a... There was a satirical show on Russian television, and when Putin came to power, uh, was elected again in, uh, in the year 2000, he went after the television show and tried to kill the star of the show, which was a puppet called Kukli. Oh, God. <laughs> you can't make up comedy like that. I know. <laughs> I know. They, 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 killed, they not only killed Kukli, they took over the station, and from then on, it was all Russian propaganda, Putin oh my propaganda. God. So it does get under their skin, and yet they have effective means to deflect it. Yeah. Well, they do in an, in an authoritarian state, which is why you, yeah, satirists are determined not to allow their governance, governments to become authoritarian. It's a dangerous game they play in some societies. Not quite so dangerous here, thank God. You know, the great document, recent document on this subject is a wonderful column by Nicholas Kristof about one mm. week ago in the New York Times. 
uncharacteristic of, of Nick Kristoff. He, he was writing about comedy, and he was writing about satire and mockery and how it is, in fact, one of the greatest weapons against authoritarianism. And yet I'm reminded of something you said in a piece you wrote where you talked about, uh, was it John Cleese who started... An, oh, uh, no, Peter Cook, Peter Cook. Peter Cook, yeah, yes. tell that. Yes, Peter Cook, uh, he was kind of the darkest and strangest and probably the funniest member of Beyond the Fringe back in the 60s. And I was obsessed with them back then. Uh, he, when he started this satirical review club in London called The Establishment, in the late 60s after Beyond the Fringe had disbanded. And he said he wanted to model it on those wonderful Berlin cabarets that did so much to stop the rise of Hitler. Now, right. that is a, that's pure that's, Peter That's Cook brilliant satire joke. in itself. It is, yeah. but it, it acknowledges the limitations of satire. Yeah. Yes, indeed, satire is absolutely essential. And we embrace it, and we, we, thank, we say, thank God they are there. We need them so much. They hold the shameful, they, they, they put the shameful to shame, and we need that. But the point of Peter Cook's remark is, it does have its limitations. It doesn't necessarily change people's mind, because it's pitched to, it preaches to the converted, it sings to the choir. However, in the case of the guy who was very successful on television in Egypt, the reason it got under the skin of the leader was that there were people marching in the streets because they had been aroused yeah. by the television show, by the, by the, the hold no bars uh, comedy. Yeah. It's, it's all cyclical, isn't it? I mean... Bar no holds. I said hold no bars. It's a, yeah, well, it, it actually I cuts was just, both ways, Alan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, no but, I, I, but I mean, a, a satirist at least uh, sort of raises people's consciousness. It emboldens people by, by speaking out loud the things that they are thinking and afraid to say. Uh, so it's, it's absolutely essential. But it's also a tightrope act. You can get killed for it. Yes, it must be. A t and you must be feeling the tightrope now even more than when you were, were writing it. I don't know. I, it, it's interesting. I haven't, I haven't, I, I, nobody's thrown anything at me. Nobody's yelled anything at me. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm just, I think it's such a curiosity that I, a fairly, anodyne entertainer have gone in this particular direction. Uh, perhaps people haven't even discovered it yet, or maybe they just don't understand the jokes. I don't know. That you found yourself going in this direction is interesting to me because I felt challenged by your books. Mm -hmm. These books of satire that you stepped out and spoke from the heart and the mind about the dangers you feel our country is going through. And for 35 years, ever since I had spent 10 years trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed, and I was not only mixing in politics, I think I thought of myself as an activist. And at the end of that time, I thought, okay, I've done my part. I gave it the office. 
now I'm going to devote myself to what I do best, which is my work in the arts. And I've been very strict about that. I haven't said anything about politics, no matter how strongly I felt. But you challenged me with this book. Well, uh, I wish I could, I wouldn't do this, but I, I wish I could share our email exchange because you wrote me an email when I asked you to do it. I mean, for those of you listening in, Alan and I are old friends. So I somewhat surprised him with this request, and I told him, feel absolutely free to say no, I would completely understand. He was one of the first people I asked. And he wrote me the most beautiful and eloquent expression of what you just said. And I know that feeling very well. You, you stumped for the uh, Equal Rights Amendment passionately. You put so much into it, and so, and you burned your fingers by arousing a lot of uh, anger and, and antipathy, and ultimately, you and all the other supporters of the ERA lost. And I could, I completely understand why you would say, you know, I've done my duty. And in the, you've gone publicly with your advocacy ever since in the most noble way on behalf of science, the arts, communication, all these things. And, but you have stirred, steered clear of politics, even though everybody knew your politics very well because of the, e, the ERA era. I was so touched when you said this particular historical moment has made me feel I've got to get back into the arena. And this is a perfect time for us to recite the poem that you did for me in one of the videos. Oh, Alan, should we do that? Let's do it. Let's do it yeah. together. Okay. Yes. Okay. Great. Uh, Alan himself has broken this poem into a wonderful dialogue so that we could recite it together. It's called Rufal Roger, and you will recognize who it's about very soon in the course of the poem. But. When we finish the poem, we're going to tell you about another very interesting subject, is what happens when events change after a poem is published. Here's Rufal Roger. A sentence was due for Rufal Roger. Dirty trickster, artful dodger. Hangdog dandy, glum and gaunt. His trial had reached its denouement. A year before, in Lauderdale... The feds hauled Roger off to jail. The charges sent reporters scampering, obstruction, lies, and witness tampering. Like the rest of Dumpty's crooks, Roger hung on tenterhooks, doomed to reap what he had sown. Fortune frowned on Roger Stone. But aid and comfort from afar was smuggled in by William Barr. The AG sneaked on from the sidelines, shortening Roger's sentencing guidelines. Barr was certain none would notice favors from a friend of POTUS. His cloak and dagger recommendation, change nine years to mere probation. Roger crowed, although he saw this clearly trashed, the rule of law. Waiting for the judge's sentence, he smugly penned his fake repentance. But just when everything seemed hunky-dory, storm clouds darkened Roger's story. Dumpty blabbed at Barr's intrusion, stirring anger and confusion. 
Four prosecutors cried disgrace, threw a fit, and quit the case. 2,000 lawyers, ex-DOJ, demanded Barr be carted away. The jig was up. The press discovered a trail of dirt as yet uncovered, damning evidence to tar Dumpty's bond with William Barr. Thence the tale began to widen. Attacks on Strzok, McCabe, and Biden, yet charges eased with wink and grin for Rudy, Eric Prince, and Flynn. An ugly truth came into focus. POTUS and his hocus-pocus, bending justice to his ends, crushing foes and shielding friends. A ruthless thug who dodged impeachment, emperor of overreachment. He'll try to dodge this bullet, too. But honestly, what else is new? This tale of justice run amuck has claimed one hapless sitting duck. Jail awaits its latest lodger, foolish fallen persiflager, dirty trickster, artful dodger, not so artful, rueful Roger. <laughs> applause, 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 applause. Now, just imagine you poets out there what it's like to have Alan Alda read your comic verse. We're taking a brief pause in my live streamed conversation with John Lithgow, which was hosted by the 92nd Street Y in New York City. When we come back, we'll talk about what happens when events change right after you've published your satire of them. And John will read a couple more poems from his book, Trumpy Dumpty Wanted a Crown. And we'll take questions from the audience listening into our conversation right after this. We have some exciting news for clear and vivid listeners, especially those who enjoy our conversations with scientists. We're producing a new weekly series called Science Clear and Vivid, sponsored by the Kavli Foundation. In this special series, I talk with some of the leading figures shaping science in the United States, focusing on how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. So check it out. Science Clear and Vivid, every Thursday for the next nine weeks. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. 
This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with John Lithgow, where we pick up on a concern I had before recording that poem I read about Roger Stone. This is a conversation that we had by email before we recorded it, which was, when you wrote it, Roger went to jail, and it makes a really good ending to the poem. Yeah. Then after you wrote it, he's out of jail. Yeah. So what kind of a problem did that present you with? This was very sweet. Well, one problem was Alan Alda was not happy with this situation. Alan emailed me and said, John, you know, he's been, exi- he's been commuted. His sentence was commuted. And you didn't. And I said, well, Alan, it's true. Uh, but I had to submit this poem to the printers. It was too late to, to alter it. Uh, but my best defense is... I was not writing just a poetry book, but a history book. Uh, I discovered early on, especially with the velocity at which events come rushing by in the Trump administration, that every day that I wrote a poem, the next day it would be ancient history. And I realized, well, why don't you just embrace that? You're telling history. And in its way, it makes a poem even more interesting. You sort of see my naivete at work. Uh, I'm tempted to, because this is such a cool subject and conversation, I'm tempted to read another poem called The Invisible Man, which is an even better demonstration of how a poem changes when events change after it has been written and published. This is a poem called The Invisible Man, and you'll know who it's about It was written when this guy was flying high. He was on top of the world, and he was one of the most powerful men in the Trump universe. And think what's happened to him since as you listen to this poem. It's called The Invisible Man. My name is Brad Parscale. I do what I can. I'm Dumpty's essential invisible man. I've been at his side since the very creation, his maestro of media disinformation. I'm the towering Texan who made him the POTUS, yet I constantly strive to escape public notice. My political mantra I I chant by the hour, work in the dark when you're wielding dark power. When Dumpty gears up for another election, my impact is felt like a viral infection. I launch all my strategies, plots, and schemata by harvesting truckloads of voters' raw data, then clog up the web with my internet litter on Facebook and Instagram, TikTok and Twitter. Millions are lured by my grand master plan since no one can see the invisible man. When the story is told of King Dumpty's ascendance, my name will appear in the very first sentence. His fiery climb was a walk in the park. He provided the fuel. I provided the spark. When I threw my dust in America's eye, you couldn't distinguish a fact from a lie. You couldn't distinguish the bad from the good. The invisible man did all that he could. Now think of that poem in the context of what just happened to Brad Parscale. Not only was he shunted out of the Trump universe after the Tulsa uh, pep rally, but he has attempted suicide. 
He has been revealed as having cheated, bilked this campaign and campaign donors of hundreds of thousands of dollars for his own use. And yet he was strutting around like the cock of the walk when I wrote this poem. Hmm. Not to mention the fact that in the course of the poem, I mentioned a viral infection, which had never even been heard of when I wrote those right, words. Right, right, right. It's so interesting. The, the, the reader, the naive reader, yeah. can, can look at that and say, my God, you're, you're taking off against a man who attempted suicide. Yeah. Uh, you're hitting below the belt. I think this is a, but but it's only because times have changed. Yeah, and once once the book is out, times will change even more. There's no there's, there's no chance to erase sentences that some people will see as uh, unappetizing. Yeah, but and, and I think I like, that, I, I like to think that I wrote with a certain amount of empathy. On a certain level, I pity Donald Trump. I think he's a very insecure and damaged man. I wouldn't be that man for all the world. Uh, and, and Brad Parscale, how can you not feel sorry for, for a man who, who has been brought so low so quickly when he was riding so high? Uh, and yet, you know, the, the, there are two things at work in a lot of these poems, uh, hubris and karma. Riding high, brought low. Those two elements are also a big part of comedy. So, you know, I, I find it when the last line of that, of that poem, the invisible man did all that he could, I find that a very resonant line now. I mean, not to congratulate myself on it, it's by pure accident. I think what tied up in all of this is the need... I personally feel, I can't speak for you, but I personally feel it's important that regardless of what I might say from here on out about how deeply I feel our nation is threatened, democracy itself, that I don't wish harm to Donald Trump. I don't want him to be so sick that he would rather die. I know what that's like. One night on the mountaintop 17 years ago in Chile, I nearly died with a pain so terrific that I would have been glad to die to get to stop the pain. And in this case, we hear reports that it feels when you're in the worst stages of COVID that it feels as though you're drowning constantly for hours or days it, it must be a nightmare, and I don't wish that on anybody. That's torture. I don't, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of torture, as, as Donald Trump might put it. But I am a fan of democracy, and all of the transgressions that I've seen and have not said anything about publicly could all be solved if we maintain our democracy. The, the transgressions against women, taking children from their parents and losing track of them, being careless about the lives of thousands of people because he, as, as, little, as little time ago as an hour or two as we speak, he said something like, don't be afraid of COVID, which, which in a, if, if, if your follower, that's, that's like 
Kool-Aid to your followers. I know. It's, it's dreadful. You know, Alan, this is why I was so delighted you agreed to do this conversation. Because of your own history with comedy and satire, I mean, I mean when I think of M.A.S.H., the reason why that show was so groundbreaking and unique, and there really hasn't been anything quite like it since, is that it mixed horror with comedy in such a, a, a startling way. And you yourself, your performance was part and parcel of this. I'm not simply uh, flattering you here. It, 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 is, it is why well, I let was excited go, to have John. this. Let you, just let yourself go. <laughs> well, everybody agrees with me. You, it was, you were extraordinary in it. The show was extraordinary and... The subject was extraordinary, and it had so much to do with how challenging it was. It's it's easy to make people laugh, but it's very difficult to make them laugh with a, 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 a laughter spiced with pain uh, and and horror. And yet, that it's so important to do that. It's so cathartic. Oh, it's important to laugh. To <laughs> laughing is, I think, getting a lot of people through this pandemic in spite of the tragedy all around us. But you you remind me of something that I just forgot because I took a side tour. Wait a minute. About oh 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 yeah. The idea that has been proposed by one or two people is very interesting. We've been talking about satire and comedy. And the suggestion has been made that Donald Trump was successful in his campaign because he ran as a comedian. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. he, in, in some ways, he was neither a Democrat nor a Republican, but he was a Borscht Belt comic. Yeah. And he had the rhythms. And, and, oh, and one other important thing about running as a comic, when you do comedy, and most comedians subscribe to this idea that everything is fair game in comedy, Right. Yeah. It's when you it's the court jester, the fool. Yeah. He's the only one who can say, "Hey, the king has no clothes. What's this?" Yeah. Yeah. So now you have the king becoming the fool. Yeah. And what and your that phrase you just used, everything is fair game in in comedy. Trump has taken the approach that everything is fair game in politics. He says the most right. astonishing things back in that primary campaign when he said Ted Cruz's father was involved in the cons- in, in, in the Kennedy assassination, or 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 the 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 origin story of his life in politics, the birther conspiracy theory. Everything oh, is amazing. fair game in politics. You know, yeah. I, I I wrote an editorial in the New York Times a year ago about Trump as an entertainer. And the whole mm. theme, actually, I, I have to confess, since then I've decided that my theme was completely wrong. My point was he's a lousy entertainer. And that was basically by my lights. He appears to have absolutely no sense of irony, self-awareness, uh, t- timing. He's, he, he, I've never heard him actually tell a joke. I've never even seen him laugh. His huge campaign rallies are like arena comedy events. People roar with laughter. So, in fact, I was quite wrong. He is a very effective entertainer, 
with his audience. You can be a terrible performer and extremely successful. Yeah. If he said something particularly thought to be reprehensible, he would say, hey, just kidding. Yeah, it's been a hell of a, hell of a thing to live through. <laughs> it, it has. And the, what we're doing now is shaking our heads in dismay and disbelief. Yeah. But if anybody agrees with any part of what we said, the chance in many states is right now to do something about it, to, as you say in one of your verses, to vote. Yeah, the, the other not-so-hidden agenda of the book was, was to get people to vote. And to, there's, no, there's no mystery as to which way I, I wanted them to vote. Um, I, 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 I'm tempted to read the last poem in the book just because it ends with exactly that kicker. Shall I do that? Yes, uh, do. It's called, there are three Trumpty Dumpty poems in this book beginning, middle, and end. And this is the one that, well, you've already heard the first one in that video. This is the last one. This is how the book ends. It's called Trumpty Dumpty Wanted a Title, continuing the sort of monarchy theme. Trumpty Dumpty wanted a title. To him, an imperious handle was vital. Dumpty the Bold or Dumpty the Great, a moniker lending his legacy weight. He tortured his brain for a suitable label, Dumpty the genius, or Dumpty the stable, Dumpty the wise, or perhaps the sublime, not Dumpty the orange. It's too hard to rhyme. <laughs> While urgent emergencies went unaddressed, an appropriate nickname had Dumpty obsessed. But given what's past and what's yet to befall him, history will shortly decide what to call him. A POTUS whose pants are routinely on fire could be Dumpty the Huckster or Dumpty the Liar. With his bullshit throughout our pandemic attack, an apt nom de guerre would be Dumpty the Quack. With his electoral help he's received from afar, there's Dumpty the Russian or Dumpty the Czar. Racial intolerance? Open the spigot for the odious record of Dumpty the Bigot. Daddy's podiatrist helped him defer, hence Dumpty the Bone and Dumpty the Spur. Take his prurient past and, for accuracy's sake, call him Dumpty the Lecher or Dumpty the Rake. The scandals and crimes that have always erupted make him Dumpty the Venal, malign, or corrupted. Compared to the others, going back to the first, whatever you name him, he's Dumpty the Worst. What title can conjure this ludicrous gent, a POTUS who hastened a nation's descent, at the end of this age of profound discontent, I'll settle for Dumpty, the ex-president. Uh, now that's... Applause, applause, applause. That's awfully mean to a man who's ailing in a hospital. But no matter what happens in these few days, this next week, and no matter how he suffers, and no matter how much sympathy we have for him... Nothing can change the last four years. Those, all those things have happened, and they have to be remembered. I say in the introduction to this book, I wrote it for three reasons, to make people laugh, to make them mad, and to make them remember, and with any luck, to make them vote. Well, you could fix the couplet in which you say, 
orange is too hard to rhyme <laughs> because it's not such a bad idea to say, orange, you're glad you can vote. <laughs> but technically, that's not a rhyme. <laughs> oh, to hell with it. <laughs> can you believe I've spent it's... all my time thinking about rhymes and meter for the last eight months? I'm exhausted. <laughs> but it is fun to work within the limits, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful as soon as you think of the last rhyme. Until then, it's misery. <laughs> the happy misery of writing. I heard that uh, Alan J. Lerner took like three weeks to figure out the last line of, of Wouldn't It Be Lovely? And do you know what the last line of Wouldn't It Be Lovely is in no. My Fair Lady? Lovely, 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 lovely. <laughs> Two weeks. <laughs> it sounds like he gave up at the last minute. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> I think it's time to take in some questions from okay. our folks who are, are listening and watching. How did you first get interested in poetry? Ah, well, uh, you know, I've always written doggerel poems just as a lark. I remember my father used to write a big Christmas poem every year on Christmas morning. He would go oh. in the next room and he would come out uh, 45 minutes later with a poem that included everybody's name. I, I, there, there's just been a lot of larky poem poetry, not serious at all, but like on cast party, uh, fi the, the, the final closing night party at the end of a play, I would... I would recite a poem that included all the actors' names. I, I've given two commencement addresses at prep schools with small graduating classes in which I used the names of all the graduating seniors. Whoa, uh, that was, that's That was great. a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, I, I, this all started when I, I, I sang the Major General's song at a gala for the public theater and altered the last verse to make it a song about Michael T. Flynn. I am the very model of an ex-lieutenant general. And I made all these catty remarks. He'd just been, he'd just been fired and, and indicted and all this. And it was huge. And I told my literary agent about this and he said, well, there's your next book. And that's how this all started. I, I never would have imagined myself going so public with my own politics uh, I'm too shy by nature to do that, uh, or or publishing poetry at all. And in fact, this is the first time I've ever published my own illustrations. It was this marvelous editor, David Kuhn. He just, he wouldn't let up on me. He said, you've got to do this. Uh, and that's what's turned me into a poet. Well, I, I should follow in your footsteps because I have... I have written what I consider to be an extraordinarily good limerick. Yes, what is it? We were driving through England, and our t our task was every time we went through a town, we had to make up a limer limerick about that town. Oh, good. So as we drove, we drove through the town of Settle, and I, after about 10 miles, came up with a beer-drinking lady from Settle took a mid-morning pee in her kettle. <laughs> At quarter to three, her husband made tea and said, Darling, you've tested my metal. <laughs> Almost couldn't get it out. Oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> now, here, here's, here's, a, here's a question. 
What has been most impactful to keeping you informed and finding your satire activism voice? What, what's most informing you? Well, I must say I've been obsessed, not obsessed, but it's just been part of my, the rhythm of life, my life is watching those talking heads on MSNBC most nights. Rachel Maddow, God bless her, she gets in there with her extraordinary staff of uh, researchers. I imagine she must have an extraordinary staff of researchers. And they, they sift through the news and they find these extraordinary stories and they they set my hair on fire. I get so angry. And then I go plunging in and do my own research. You know, a, a detailed poem about Jay Sekulow or Elaine Chow or Eric Prince. In many cases, I first I've heard these people first caught my notice when I heard them reported on MSNBC. And I know it's it's the it is the direct the opposite pole from Fox News, and you pretty much know they're preaching to the converted too, but her stories are incredibly well-researched and full of information and always so timely. Alexandra Acosta, the entire appalling story of uh, the shenanigans in the legal system of Florida that exonerated Jeffrey Epstein 10 years, 11 years before everybody else knew about it. I saw that deeply re reported by Rachel Maddow, and I spun my poem in the first book called uh, Acosta Agonistes, right out of that poem, and just packed it with information. I mean, the other thing about my poems is every one of them, as you say, they are annotated. There's a little paragraph that says mm. factually what everything that just preceded it is all about. So you have a funny lighthearted, witty poem, and then you have just pure facts to say, this is not fake. And that, that I, that's because of journalism. You know, God bless journalists. To make journalism the enemy of the people is a sad moment. Disgraceful, yeah. This is a challenging notion, and I think, therefore, we should bring it up. John and Alan, you must know that in the entertainment industry, being a Republican or conservative is a mark against you. There is this popular idea that everybody in the entertainment business is a liberal. Have you found that to be true? Well, I think they are, the majority are liberal. Um, I, I have plenty of conservative friends. Some of my best friends are conservatives. Um, I don't know. I'm, I am, I am el an elitist. I, I know... I know Trump's base has great contempt for the coastal elites. Uh, there is a terrible anti-intellectualism that runs through this country, uh, and always has. It's been, a, and I'm, I, I confess, I am a snob on behalf of education, educating yourself, re reading all all the good news instead of the genuine fake news, uh, and I do believe that. Uh, that most entertainers, uh, they are highly educated people. They're, they're not fools. And uh, I don't know, I, I show my own colors and they are very snobbish. I'm not proud of my snobbism, but I'm, but I'm very uh, intent on maintaining my, 
my, my intellectual curiosity, and I'm very proud of being an educated person. So I think that's a long answer to a short question. But uh, I think that's why most entertainers are liberals. This is interesting. How do you find hilarity in these dark times? Oh, God. What, what makes me laugh? Uh, Schitt's Creek makes me laugh these days. I have to confess a guilty pleasure. I don't know whether you do this, Alan, but I, I've recently started going back and, re, and re-watching old episodes of Third Rock from the Sun. And they make me laugh like a dream. Oh, isn't that nice? I, this all happened because I, I, I got Jane Curtin and Joey Gordon-Levitt in amongst all these performers to do the videos. And just talking to them about the old times made me want to go back and watch Third Rock. And as you, as you also probably know, you, you forget. I, I don't remember doing any of these I episodes. Know. I watch them as if they're oh, brand oh, new, and they make me laugh so hard. <laughs> it's so great. great. Let me look up another question from the audience. How do you intend to spend November 4th? Oh, my God. Well, I'm con- completely convinced that, that November 4th, and in fact, the whole month of November is going to be not just anticlimactic, but a complete shitstorm. Uh, we just have to keep calm and be patient and let the electoral system count the votes and run its course. And I think that's going to take weeks. Uh, it is one of the great disgraces that so many people have spent so much time trying to undermine uh, the upcoming election. I think we just have to be prepared for it. So I guess on November 4th, I'll just get drunk and stay that way for a month. (laughs) (laughs) Either way. (laughs) This is a follow-up question from the one we had earlier. John, does one's politics really influence how employable one can be in the entertainment business? I haven't experienced that, have you? Candidly, I think it's probably harder for right-wing artists in the entertainment business it probably affects them more than liberals. You mean they have they have trouble being employed? I don't know. Uh, I've seen a couple of my very strenuous right-wing actor friends struggle. And I don't know whether that's because of their politics. Maybe it's willful on their part. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. that, that it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, but... Uh, I've sort of avoided comments on my on the online people commenting on on my poems and my appearances. A lot of people who were big fans of Third Rock from the Sun, for example, or Dexter, uh, they've probably written me off. But something has changed. I have felt it's much more important to get out there in the last four years and and let people know what you really believe and stand up for it. What I hope for. I continue to hope for, and I've been working toward this for maybe 15 or 20 years, is that whatever direction we go in, that we don't stop talking to one another, that we don't stop listening to one another. The the idea that the other side are idiots or stupid or reprehensible He's not going to get us anywhere, and I'm, I'm trying to help us listen. I hope we do. I hope the people who don't like your book will just think, of, think about you as a person with an idea, point of view. 
put it in the pot and stir it up. Well, it's one thing that that really moves me about Joe Biden is he he genuinely seems to feel the same way that that it's so important that we change the whole politics of divisiveness. That's that's almost the the top priority, and I think a lot of people are responding to that. They may respond to that more than they do to his to his political positions. They may not even be aware of his political positions, but they know a dignified, decent person when they see him or her. Well, as always, when we get together, I would like to go on into the wee hours with you, but we're supposed to stop around now. Oh, well, it's, I knew it would be great, and it was great, Alan. I wish we were in the same room and on the same coast in the same great city. I'll get back there sometime soon. It's great to see you for these few minutes, John. You too, Alan. You too. Good night. This has been a special episode of Clear and Vivid, recorded during a live stream event hosted by the 92nd Street Y in New York City. John Lithgow is an actor who's portrayed a vast range of characters in a wide range of genres for decades. On Broadway, in films, and on television, he's given remarkable performances. And now he's emerged as a best-selling satirical writer. For more about John, visit johnlithgow.com. Clear and Vivid's executive producer is Graham Shedd. Our associate producer is Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. And our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Laurie Santos, the Yale University psychology professor whose experience with unhappy students has led her to insights into how we can all be happier. My guess is for most people listening to this podcast, if you have like, you know, a decent middle class income, if you have a roof over your head and food on the table, pretty much changing your circumstances is not going to affect your happiness in the way you think, which is a startling discovery. It violates every intuition that I definitely have about happiness and that most people have. You know, we think that happiness comes from our circumstances, but in practice, it comes from all kinds of other things. It comes from our mindsets. It comes from our behaviors, um, which is frustrating because, you know, as a happiness expert these days, I see a lot of people putting lots of work into changing your circumstances but that's not going to help you in the way you think. Lori Santos sharing her insights into the secrets of happiness next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>